Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. A week on edge as Iran retaliated for the U.S. killing of a top general by sending a wave of missiles to hit bases housing U.S. troops. No one died. It was interpreted as a measured response, and President Trump did not further escalate the conflict. Yet Trump still had choice words for Iran in his national address. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Good morning. Congressional Democrats have called for a check on the president's ability to act on his own authority toward Iran, and even some prominent Republicans lashed out at the administration. Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky told CNN the Senate should get to decide whether Trump should be given that authority. Nobody in their right mind with a straight face, with an ounce of honesty, can argue that when Congress voted to go after Saddam Hussein in 2002, that that authorized military force against an Iranian general 18 years later. We'll have our reporters' roundtable on all that and more this hour. First, we wanted to talk with a senior lawmaker familiar with decisions about armed conflict and whether to commit American troops to war. Joining us now from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, is U.S. Senator Patty Murray. She's a Democrat who represents Washington state. Uh, She voted against the war authorization to invade Iraq in 2002, and she's one of the few lawmakers who did so who remains in Congress. She's also one of the senior Democrats in the leadership uh, of the United States Senate. Senator Murray, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to add context to this week's news. Thank you. At this really serious time of our country for having a thoughtful discussion. Appreciate it. So let's talk a little bit, uh, just take a moment to frame this in context. What is different about the nature of the discussion about uh, the confrontation and possible conflict with Iran than occurred uh, nearly two decades ago over the subject of Iraq and Saddam Hussein? Well, when uh, we were discussing this 18 years ago, the president came to Congress to present his uh, reasons and uh, testimony and all of the what he felt were facts about the facts on the ground to ask for our authority to go to war. Mm -hmm. This is a very different time. The president tweeted to us after he had made a very um, uh, dangerous decision uh, to say that this was his intent. Uh, That is not how our country should ever put our men and women lives at risk, our economic security and the future of this country. Obviously, you've had to think hard about this uh, issue in the past. You you know, a number of the folks who voted uh, the opposite way uh, uh, from the way you voted uh, back in 2002 in anticipation of that uh, invasion the next year came to regret it. Uh, The late uh, Senator John McCain among them. There are folks who are in Congress or in Senate right now who may oppose you on the question of uh, the nature Mm -hmm. of our interactions with uh, Iran who nonetheless are expressing concerns equally about the way in which the administration has behaved. Why is that? Well, it is a very serious discussion when you talk about putting American lives at risk. We are asking men and women to go to war, and we have seen in this what happens to soldiers when they go to war and their families, what happens to them in the immediate, both mental and physical wounds of war, loss of life, families who've had to deal with it, the uh, what happens to them when they come home and try to get back into a civilian life and a job, the cost to our country. Um, so when you take a serious step like going to war provocatively, you have to answer all those questions before you go. I remember when we were uh, looking at all of the data and everything that was being presented to us when we were asked to go to war in Iraq. Uh, and questioning whether or not um, it was accurate. Today, mm-hmm. we're not even be, being given any uh, information that says that there is any backing to what they are asking us to do. Uh, this is serious. 
Senator Patty Murray, uh, you don't have to name names, but take us behind closed doors. Take us into the room. When you talk to Republican colleagues uh, about uh, not just Democrats who have been openly critical of the Trump administration on a variety of lists, but Republican colleagues, as I'm sure you do, about the way in which the this administration, particularly this president, has handled this confrontation, even as tensions have subsided in recent days. Uh, how do they characterize uh, – their trust in the in the administration's handling of this high stakes drama. Well, there certainly are people on both sides who have an immediate reaction one way or the other. Um, we are in a very partisan time, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of thoughtful members on both sides, Republican and Democrats, who understand the consequences of an action like this, short term and long term. And let me take you back again to when we were discussing the war in Iraq. And there were people in the room who were saying to us, oh, America's power is so great. This war will be over in five days. We will overpower them. Look what history has taught us. There are members there today who understand that and know that and know that making a decision like this by a tweet or by an overreaction or by being bellicose about it can cost our country lives and its economic stakes far into the future. And Senator, uh, one of the questions I have is certainly the, the strong majority of your colleagues, if I recall correctly, uh, supported uh, authorizing the Bush administration to press towards that invasion uh, of Iraq. You know, we've been at war for so long now since really the the strikes uh, on Afghanistan in the fall of 2001 in the wake of 9-11. We've basically been in, you know, what's been called this forever war. Uh, is there the feel that people don't trust this administration to pursue military uh, uh, conflict? Or is there the sense uh, more broadly that uh, that your colleagues in the Senate are just uh, deeply fatigued as the nation is of being in this uh, constant state of military conflict? I think it's both. And I think that um, both of those need to be considered. You need to trust Uh, the man at the top, that he is going to make the right decisions for the country thoughtfully, smartly, wisely, uh, and have people around him who can advise him of all of the consequences, short-term and long-term. There is a concern about that right now. Uh, And I think that is also in the nation, as you talked about, the weariness of having been at war for 18 years adds to that belief and mistrust that you can go into the Middle East, a very complicated region, take action, and assume you're going to be out in a few months. So that goes back to the question of what are the goals of this action and putting our military in a, in a conflict in a very serious way uh, and our families. Um, and that has not been outlined. Certainly, we all want peace in the Middle East. It is a goal we need to achieve. How do we get there? by killing a general and bragging about it on a tweet? Or do we do it by using our allies and everyone in the region to try and bring calm to this and to, uh, to solve the problems uh, as you know, much as we can through a, a diplomatic surgency? We've been hearing there the words of Senator Patty Murray. She's a top Democrat in the uh, United States Senate. Uh, Senator Murray, we appreciate uh, your time so much today. Thank you. We should also note we also invited uh, several leading Republican uh, senators uh, on the show for their insights as well. So let's pick up where Senator Murray leaves off. A roundtable brings in a lot of expertise and insight. Joining us here uh, by phone in New York City is Farnas Fasihi. She's a journalist who writes about Iran for The New York Times, and she's an experienced former conflict correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us today, Farnas. Thank you for having me. And with us from Washington, D.C. is Weijia Zhang. She's a CBS News White House correspondent. Uh, Weijia, we're so glad to have you join us today. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you. And, of course, from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point's own news analyst Jack Beatty joins us. Hello, Jack. Hello, David. So uh, only a little bit of time before uh, the end of our first segment here, but I wanted to turn to you, Farnaz. To, uh, you're so experienced covering not only the Middle East but Iran in particular, a land with which you have ties. Uh, 
one of the things that fascinates me in listening to Senator Murray is thinking about the fact that here's a country that has acted to sponsor terrorism against Americans. The uh, Iranian general who was killed uh, is somebody who's responsible for for a lot of deaths uh, around that region, a lot of mayhem. And yet, same time, we had been in some ways we'd reached diplomatic accords with uh, the Iranians. We had been relying on that same general in some ways to fight ISIS. And even now, a poignant touch, you know, in, in the wake of this uh, passenger airliner uh, that uh, that appears to have been struck uh, mistakenly by the Iranians. They've allowed the American NTSB to come in and to help uh, investigate what occurred. You know, it seems as though there's this uh, there are these entanglements and involvements with the Iranians, even as uh, it's a country that we uh, with understandable cause at times uh, attack for sponsoring terrorism. Well, Iran and the U.S. have had these kind of um, uh, entanglements and relationships going going back all the way to uh, the aftermath of 9-11, even as far back as that when the U.S. was invading, uh, was about to invade Afghanistan, Iranians uh, shared the intelligence that they had on the Taliban and Afghanistan with the U.S., uh, and over the over the years, yes, the the public posturing and the uh, and and the and the regime in Iran is very much anti-American. But Iran is not North Korea. Iran is not a closed-off uh, state with no relationship with others. It's a it's a very uh, it's got a very dynamic population. It's in the middle of a very strategic region for the for the United States. It's. Uh, uh, it has control over the Strait of Hormuz, where most of the world's uh, energy ships through. And uh, so there's a lot of reasons uh, for Iran and the U.S. to try to um, work to, w- with each other and reach some sort of a diplomatic uh, accord. It's, it's a very, uh, of course, there's a lot of hurdles. There's a lot of uh, ideology uh, and um, on both sides, I think, from, from both um, the U.S. and, and in Iran. Uh, you know, ideologically, there are a lot of people who don't support that. But in reality, we've seen from the fight to ISIS to uh, the war on terror and uh, many different things, there have been in- instances where they've had to actually work together. Uh, you're hearing through, there through from, allies. I'm sorry. I should point out that sometimes, through many times, through allies in the region or through Europeans, sort of a, dip, a diplomatic and indirect a collaboration with those that we see in some ways as as our foes and our enemies. Uh, you're hearing there from Farnas Fasihi of the New York Times. Uh, we'll be picking up this conversation again. Weijia Zhang of uh, of uh, CBS, Jack Beatty, stick around. We'd like all of you to stick around. We're going to be talking about crises at home, crises abroad, a fraught week, folks. We'll be talking more about this U.S. confrontation with Iran, what might lie ahead, and the fight over impeachment. We'd like you to join our conversation. The threat of war appears to have subsided. How do you now feel about President Trump's decisions in this crisis? I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions – and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big inside of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. 
And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflik. We're talking about a tense week with a high-wire act internationally and domestic political crises here at home. Arguments over war powers, arguments over impeachment. You can join our conversation. Follow us on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. We have, as ever, a superstar and super sharp panel of guests with me this hour. Farnaz Fasihi with The New York Times, Weijia Jang from CBS News and our own On Point News Analyst. Jack Beatty. Uh, Weijia, you cover uh, the White House. I want to play for listeners a clip of how uh, President Trump addressed the question of Iranian missile strikes on Iraqi bases housing U.S. forces. Uh, the president delivered these televised remarks from the White House on Wednesday. As we continue to evaluate options in response to Iranian aggression, the United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior. Weijia, I want to get to a congressional response in a, in a moment or two. But first I want to get to the question of uh, the what seems like the de-escalation of what had been a pretty intense crisis. Uh, what is, as you understand it, uh, thinking of senior officials and what is, as we all know, the most important thing, uh, the thinking of the president or at least the instinct of the president uh, – in the last few moves we've seen from the White House? Well, before Iran retaliated, there was certainly a lot of tension within the White House um, and administration because we were all waiting to see exactly what it was going to do uh, in response to the killing of General Soleimani. And so um, you had President Trump uh, coming out with very firm words saying if Iran did anything uh, that they shouldn't be doing, that they would face even more consequences. And so it seemed that he was prepared and ready to launch yet another attack. In fact, he rolled out uh, members of his secretary, top military commanders to uh, speak publicly, issuing the same very clear message that the U.S. is ready to respond again. And so there was this rush of relief when uh, the president was able to announce that there were no casualties that no uh, soldiers had been killed. And, you know, he even tweeted before those public remarks that all is well. The problem is that even though he's able to declare this victory and uh, with the appearance of de-escalation, this is far from over. You know, just hours after the president made those remarks and told American people that they should feel extremely grateful and happy for Iran's relatively tame response, his own FBI and Department of Homeland Security issued an intelligence bulletin to law enforcement agencies warning that uh, Iran could act through uh, an attack on U.S. cyberspace, that they have made assassination uh, threats before, and certainly, uh, perhaps most importantly, that they could act through their proxies like Hezbollah. And so... Even though the president right now is claiming this win, is saying that he was able to, uh, you know, take down one of the most dangerous men in the world. Um, you know, even though he's saying that, we don't know yet. And that is why so many members of Congress, that is why his critics are still worried about what's to come. Jack Beatty, I want to play a couple of clips for you and for our listeners uh, uh, about the question of the nature of the threat and the nature of the administration's response. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo made the case this week for the decision to kill Qasem Soleimani, that is this uh, figure, this Iranian general who is you know, head of special forces, an intelligence figure, w one of the most important people in Iranian government, but also designated by the U.S. as a terrorist. And Mike Pompeo made this case, Secretary of State, because of what he called an imminent threat that Soleimani posed. Take a listen to what Pompeo said at a press conference Tuesday in Washington. So if you're looking for imminence, you needn't look no further than the days that led up to the strike that was taken against Soleimani. 
And then you, in addition to that, have what we could clearly see were continuing efforts on behalf of this terrorist to build out a network of campaign activities that were going to lead potentially to the death of many more Americans. It's the right decision. We got it right. This morning on Fox News, Pompeo said, quote, there's no doubt there were a series of imminent attacks being plotted. We don't know precisely when. We don't know precisely where, but it was real. Interesting definition of imminent. Now, I want to pair that, Jack, with the comments of Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah. He emerged fuming from the briefing uh, earlier this week with administration officials about all that's going on toward Iran. He said – Lee said that the briefing was so inadequate, it made him decide to join Democrats in supporting uh, a call for new legislation requiring there to be authorization of war. The briefing lasted only 75 minutes whereupon our briefers left. This, however, is not the biggest problem I have with the briefing, which I would add was probably the worst briefing I've seen, at least on a military issue, in the nine years I've served in the United States Senate. What I found so distressing about that briefing was that one of the messages we received from the briefers was, do not debate, do not discuss the issue of the appropriateness of further military intervention against Iran. And that if you do, you'll be emboldening Iran. The implication being that we would somehow be making America less safe. Lee also said that the Trump administration administration officials refused to say uh, whether the president would require or need congressional approval to order the killing of Iran's supreme leader. Killing a head of state is considered a classic act of war. Jack Beattie, tell us the state of affairs for the president, for the administration that you're seeing play out on the Hill and, and how significant you think it is. Well, uh, President Trump is is running right into the credibility gap that he has created with, according to the Washington Post, upwards now of twelve thousand falsehoods since he's uttered since being since being president. He claimed that uh, not only was the attack imminent but grave. He, he said yesterday they were going to quote blow up embassies. No proof for that. An alternative scenario, in the, you can see it in the Washington Post reporting, is that the president acted out of vengeance and to save face. The, the, the Post points out that he was particularly angry at seeing the embassy uh, under siege and when presented with options about what to do about that and about the, uh, the killing of the American contractor, he went to the most di- dire, which was to kill Soleimani, but that his motive there was as much to show that he was tough after seeing the face-off in front of the uh, embassy. So he, ha- he doesn't have a credibility. Uh, you know, at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, President Kennedy sent Adlai Stevenson to President de Gaulle with a folder carrying with, with, with photographs of the Soviet missile silos. He handed the – Stevenson handed it to President de Gaulle and President de Gaulle c- closed the folder and handed it back. And he said, when the president of the United States says there are Soviet missiles there, there are Soviet missiles there. Oh, that's as, as far from us as Rome today with the president and his – and his uh, credibility, and he's running right into it, even with, uh, I think, some pretty brave members of his own party. Farnaz, you know, we've seen the Iranians uh, uh, issue this strike against these Iraqi bases I mentioned earlier where American troops are housed. But uh, reportedly, according to authorities, no one was killed in those strikes. And the Iranians said this is as much as we're intending to do unless there's further attacks. In a sense, they're saying – we're going to do something to indicate that we're not going to walk away from the field, but we're not looking to escalate this. In some ways, you know, the American government eliminated, killed, in, in the words of many, assassinated a figure who was responsible for a lot of deaths and a lot of, uh, a lot of brutal acts in the Middle East. Uh, did Trump judge this correctly? Did his – whether it's gut impulse, whether it's vengeance is, as uh, Jack points the reporting suggesting is whether it's a, a measured conclusion, uh, which seems unlikely, always possible. In some ways, did the Trump administration do something that may yield positive benefits or are we not there yet? Do we not know what the full consequences will be? I think the events of the past 48 hours in Iran and the region show that the consequences of uh, an assassination have rippled very widely uh, through the region. The Iraq uh, 
has uh, voted to expel uh, the United the U.S. military, which is uh, extraordinary given how many lives were lost in Iraq. Uh, and the three tri trillion dollars that the U.S. has spent uh, to um, invade and stabilize I Iraq, and 20 years later, uh, it has created problems with uh, with allies who don't want to see a war with Iran. Uh, it it also uh, has led to um, the uh, the tragic um, the, you know the collateral damage and tragic loss of the. Uh, of the people on the plane. So it's been uh, really a, a cycle of things that really show that you can take these actions, as we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, you, you may be, U.S. may be a military superpower and it could uh, attack a country and start a war, but how it ends up and how it, uh, how it ends and how it plays out is very unpredictable and it can't always control that. Now, if, if, if we want to really examine whether President Trump's uh, decision to assassinate General Soleimani uh, had the intended benefit, we have to, to understand what, what, is the, what is the end goal of the administration. I think this is something that nobody is not clear uh, to neither Iran watchers or Washington insiders. If, if the U.S. wants uh, to destabilize Iran, uh, c create regime change, it has done the opposite because as we saw, millions of people came to the streets with the, the threat of war uh, sparked uh, a sense of nationalism in Iran. Mr. Trump's tweet that he was going to target 52 places in Iran, including cultural sites, uh, really rallied Iranians behind the flag. I spoke to many Iranians who, who went to the funeral only because of that tweet, just to say we don't want war with the U.S., you can't do this to us. Uh, so if, if it were to uh, to uh, get the population to rise up against the, their leaders, it did the opposite. If the goal is to de-escalate things with Iran and bring Iran to the negotiating table, uh, that seems very unlikely now because the uh, the fallout uh, of the assassination is that the hardliners have strengthened and people say President Trump is, is no longer for us the president who pulled out of the nuclear deal, who wants to negotiate a better nuclear deal. He will always be remembered as the president who killed, assassinated General Ghassan Soleimani, the number two most powerful man in Iran. Let me take a couple of calls. Uh, we've had comments from people online. One commenter online said, uh, uh, surprised there's not a queue of comments that blame the president for the rocket attacks and internal Iranian domestic protests. We certainly can't accept that the Iranian mullahs and military brought this on themselves, can we? Uh, and others who talk about, as, as, as Farnas just has, about the, the, the deaths in the airline crash, saying, uh, let's not gloss over the fact a civilian airline was shot down. Uh, this was not done by the Americans, but uh, that, in fact, uh, you know, it is a result in some ways of the crisis, that there's evidence that this was a surface-to-air missile, at least cited by Western officials and the Canadian prime minister, uh, fired by the Iranians at this civilian aircraft. I want to take a call now from Saeed, uh, who's calling from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Thanks for listening. Saeed, what are your thoughts? Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, the um, uh, the, the uh, it's being overstated that uh, uh, this is causing Iranian national unity. Let us remember that Qasem uh, Soleimani had no small part to play in the uh, in the, uh, the killing of Iranians in uh, 1999. The attack in the uh, University dormitories where they tossed students from the fifth floor of the building. Uh, Iranians remember Qasem Soleimani as a as a uh, as a perpetrator of those crimes against Iranians, and uh, not before uh, uh, a month before this, uh, Amnesty International said 1,500 Iranians were killed in the streets by these thugs that present themselves as a government in Iran. But the reason I'm calling is because uh, many have had spoken about the uh, uh, departure from the five plus one agreement as a proximate cause of current situa the current situation. And Saeed, Saeed for our listeners, Saeed, let me just say for our listeners, he's talking about the agreement struck involving the U.S. among other major signatories that uh, in which the Iranians, for lifting of sanctions, agreed to uh, suspend uh, the pursuit of any uh, weapon-grade nuclear material. Go right ahead. Yes. Um, the, you know, uh, if you're a fair arbiter of that, and I would consider Thomas Friedman a fair arbiter of that, he was uh, completely in support of the Obama agreement, but recently he published an article that said in Tehran, they will, in Iran, someday they will name a street after Trump because of killing uh, uh, Soleimani, because Soleimani was such a... Because uh, if you look at what happened after the, the behavior of Iran following the agreement uh, from, 10, 15, from 2015 to the present time, uh, Iran got reintegrated in the world economic order. They, their economy grew 10% the following year. 
they took that wealth and converted it into bombs that went over the heads of people in Aleppo. They converted it to uh, to um, to uh, Iranian proxies fighting in Yemen, in in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, and none of this uh, benefited the Iranian people. All right. So uh, let me they, let me thank let me thank you for that, Said. Very briefly, uh, uh, Farnaz, uh, reflect that. You know, the Iranian sentiment. Often, the people have been very uh, in favor of the United States. Uh, ha- has this actually rallied them against the U.S., or is this a demonstration, uh, perhaps, of anti-U.S. sentiment that it isn't truly reflective of the sentiment uh, uh, on the ground? I think it's a mix. I think you definitely, as Saeed pointed out, have Iranians who uh, ha- uh, who do not like hate General Ghassan Soleimani and the policies that he represented and the uh, sort of uh, military adventurism of the Islamic Republic uh, and the brutality that's associated with that both at home and, and abroad. Uh, but uh, we have to remember that General Soleimani's role was very unique. He was uh, in Iran's uh, military apparatus. He was in charge of the Quds forces, which are an exter- external force. And uh, since the rise of ISIS, he he was in charge of defeating ISIS and uh, helping the Iran's Shia paramilitary groups in the region, particularly in Iraq, defeat ISIS. And that really is when he became a household name in Iran. And that's when Iranians started associating him and what he was doing uh, with uh, the fact that Iran had had been able to remain safe and unstable and, and stable uh, amidst a region that was uh, ablaze in crisis and terrorism and car bombs, uh, so I think the sentiment toward General Soleimani is really mixed. Mm-hmm. And uh, and from what we hear, in, at least we saw in the aftermath, uh, even a lot of people who don't didn't represent don't support the regime, who were not uh, really uh, keen on um, what. The policies that, that, that the Islamic Republic pursues in the region uh, were angry at the U.S. because they thought this was this was going to be on top of uh, economic sanctions that are very that are hurting Iranian so, on top so of the travel ban. Now you're you're taking Iran to the brink of war. So we just very briefly let me ask you, and we're going to pop back up after this next break. But we just tell us, you know. You have Secretary of State Pompeo seemed very much desirous of striking Iran. At the same time, he's now saying let's de-escalate and uh, and find ways to work together across a, a diplomatic table. How does that work? How does the administration actually expect to do that? That's a great question that I'm sure he'll be pressed with in just a few minutes because in a rare press briefing, he is going to be talking to reporters at the White House in that briefing room that we all miss using so much. But, um, you know, he has sort of offered a lot of different um, explanations for this and continues to contradict the president himself uh, when it comes to justifying what happened. In fact, as you brought up, even though President Trump said that, um, you know, Soleimani was going to blow up our embassy, uh, Pompeo said... Uh, that he yeah. did not know precisely when and where that imminent threat was. It's it's and a tension so- within the administration itself. We've been talking about all that. We're going to be talking about impeachment after this uh, brief break. You can join our conversation. I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. In other news this week, 
Puerto Rico was hit by several devastating earthquakes. A 5.8 magnitude quake struck on Monday, followed by a 6.4 quake Tuesday. Hundreds of thousands of people lost power. One person died. Several were hurt. And in Australia, the devastation continues. More than a billion animals are now believed killed in the wildfires that are still ravaging much of the country. By the numbers, the fires burned over 12 million acres of land, killing 24 people and destroying more than 2,000 homes. My colleague Meghna Chakrabarty will be following up on that subject next week. Follow us on the Twitters. Find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. We have, as ever, a sharp and insightful panel, perfect for this week in the news, with Farnas Fasihi of the New York Times, Weijia Zhang from CBS News, and our own On Point news analyst Jack Beatty. Great to have you all here. Let's uh, uh, kick off with with a call from Sarasota, Florida. Sharon, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, tell us your thoughts today. Uh, my thoughts are regarding impeachment that Donald Trump is really just doing this Iranian uh, attack for deflection of the impeachment process and to make him appear strong. Probably can. And I think that um, I think I think that we really need to get back on track with the impeachment process and get this over as soon as possible. My other concern is that the Senate, of course, is just going to have a kangaroo court and just railroad this right through without really any due process and hearing all the evidence. So, so forgive me, who do you think it's going to railroad it through, uh, Susan, uh, Sharon? You think McConnell. that it's going to be... McConnell. Uh, the Republican leader Mitch McConnell doesn't really care about. Uh, he doesn't really right. He doesn't really care about what Congress has already proven and stated and uh, convict uh, said he's been impeached. He just wants to go ahead and make sure that uh, the process is quick and over, and the, pro- and the president is exonerated. Well, thank you for that, Sharon. Uh, Sharon calling from Sarasota, offering that. Uh, I want to play a clip uh, a little bit. A lot of this depends on, of course, what House Speaker Nancy Pelosi does, right, guys? Because uh, Pelosi has yet to convey the articles of impeachment from the House where two uh, articles were passed uh, to the Senate where a trial will be held. Uh, CNN is reporting today that uh, Pelosi will not send over articles of impeachment today. Yesterday, uh, House Speaker Pelosi said she wouldn't commit to a time frame to send those articles of impeachment over. She said she's been trying to negotiate with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on witnesses, documents, and the process of a Senate trial. No, I'm not holding them indefinitely. I'll send them over when I'm ready. And that will probably be soon. I just, you know, he said, if you don't send them over, I'm going to pass the Mexico-U.S.-Canada trade agreement. Okay. Uh, but uh, no, we, we, we want to see what they're willing to do. And the manner in which they will do it. But we will not let them say, oh, this is just like Clinton, fair is fair. It's not. Uh, Documents, documentation, witnesses, facts, truth. That's what they're affraid of. We just, you know, that said, some even some House Democrats are starting to say it's time to proceed. And and Mitch McConnell says he has enough Republican uh, support to continue for now anyway with the trial once receiving those impeachment counts without making concessions to Democrats. What has this play been by uh, Pelosi or or better yet, what has it accomplished? uh, The question of her withholding these things until more events have played out a bit. Well, it's given the White House another round of ammunition. They're actually relishing in this delay because they believe it bolsters their argument that this was all just a political uh, sham. And they they point to the fact that Democrats, including Pelosi and certainly um, intelligence uh, chairman um, Adam Schiff, that they were so eager to expedite the House proceedings Because, as Schiff said, there was a clear and present danger and that if uh, Congress didn't act, the president could continue um, to engage in this bad behavior. So now you have this delay and sources at the White House tell me, look, this shows that Pelosi was just concerned about um, how this could impact political races in 2020. And now she is seeing that it could have real consequences. And so that's why she's hesitating. Um, And so the White House claims they're ready, that they're locked and loaded and that they have their defense uh, strategy, uh, you know, for President Trump in place and ready to go and that they are eager to get this over with um, because uh, they believe that the president's going to be exonerated in the end based on simple math. Well, simple math would seem to support him in the Senate, Weijia, but you're, you're a shrewd reporter. It seems as though this White House consistently comes out and says, 
everything's going to come out roses. This is going to be awesome. Like, you know, we have this in hand. And then your reporting and the reporting of others a few days later shows that it's madness underneath when you lift up uh, the rock and see what's happening underneath, right? You know, is this them uh, saying, oh, please throw me into that briar patch? We'd love it if you keep delaying, you know, if you keep playing politics with this and the voters will get that. Or is this them simply putting lipstick on a pig and saying, we got this thing. It's going to be thrown in our faces for all of 2020. Uh, we might as well figure out what what best grapple hold we can have to fling some mud back at them. Well, look, I mean, the you know, the president has already been impeached. And so the, the next question of whether he is going to be removed from office is one that they're not actually worried about, again, because they don't think uh, because Republicans Senate... are in the majority and you need two thirds to, to pass that. Right. And they you know, they think that, you know, frankly, an advisor told me that this case is not sexy. There's nothing sexy about this that will engage the American people in another round of uh, proceedings, even though it is the Senate hearing, you know, the Senate trial. They claim that there was is already a fatigue because, you know, we saw those hours and hours of proceedings in the House play out and people have already made up their minds. And that's why I think the White House really believes it doesn't matter anymore because they believe, uh, you know, those people who support President Trump will continue to and that he'll be able to use this at rallies um, going forward, which he already has, by the way. I have attended plenty of rallies since, um, you know, he has uh, the impeachment proceedings started and he really uses this to make the case that Democrats are trying to undermine the vote in 2016. And he urges you know, voters to make sure that doesn't happen in 2020. So I would say that because the president has already been impeached and they are confident in what's going to happen in the end, um, that they really, you know, even though the president is uh, afraid that this will taint his legacy, they are not worried um, that, you know, it will have some serious repercussions for his current presidency. And yet, Jack Beattie, things are playing out in the meantime, in the interim between the impeachment uh, vote by the House and, and getting the Senate trial underway. Uh, Admiral, excuse me, amb- uh, former Ambassador John Bolton, who served as the president's national security advisor and kind of bailed out after objecting internally to what was going on with Ukraine, the pressures on Ukraine from the president, uh, He said in response to a court ruling that he would testify in front of the Senate if the Senate requested his testimony. uh, And, you know, he might have some things to say. Yes, his lawyer says he possesses new information, quote, quote, that has not yet been revealed. Uh, We know on the record that he referred to the machinations of Giuliani et al. as a, quote, drug deal around suspending the holding the aid to uh, Ukraine. And we know further uh, that he gave a private speech some weeks ago in which he said that some of Trump's foreign policy decisions have been made in his own economic self-interest. And he instanced uh, a vote, uh, a question of over sanctions, sanctioning Turkey over its buying Russian defense system. Uh, and he was saying that, that was the, the president was very much concerned with the effect that could have on his uh, the Trump Tower leasing that he has there in Istanbul. That's a damning, if he gives that testimony, that's, that's, that's corruption. Uh, it, will he give it? Well, uh, it only would take four senators to join, uh, four Republican senators could vote and to, to you know, go forward with the subpoena. There are four that would have a reason to, given their uh, political exposure. Um, and then there's the other thing that if he doesn't, that if they don't vote to do that, David Leonhardt rightly suggests the House should subpoena him. Uh, because if he said, I will take a Senate subpoena, there's no difference in law or logic between the House a subpoena from the House and a subpoena from the Senate. And they could subpoena him so we could get his testimony that way. That's fascinating. I want to ask you, uh, Farnaz uh, Fasihi, uh, about some reporting in your former uh, publication, The Wall Street Journal, uh, Mm -hmm. that the president uh, made the decision uh, to kill Soleimani uh, in part because he he thought it would help him secure support from key Republican senators he needed to keep in line on impeachment. That is these two dual crises, one uh, international possible conflict, uh, one domestic political crisis – uh, one might be influencing the others to the extent you can, you know, on, to, 
to what degree does your reporting or your analysis suggest that, that one does influence the other in that way? I think it always, international decisions always uh, uh, affect uh, domestic issues and domestic issues always affect international issues. I mean, there, a, a country usually takes uh, decisions like this as a whole, uh, especially the United States. I mean, I can't speak to the reporting at, uh, at, the, at the Wall Street Journal, obviously, because um, I'm not privy to... I understand. Uh, to You're the, at the New York re- Times. Reporting. Yeah, I'm at the New York Times, rival publication now, but, uh, but uh, you know... Uh, there, there are always um, consequences or gains or losses of uh, a decision of this magnitude that I, that I think that any administration would weigh uh, when making it. Mm-hmm. Let's turn now a little bit to uh, the question of what's ahead for 2020. Jack Beatty, uh, this morning, uh, earlier today, uh, jobs report numbers came out. They were a little sluggish. I think it was 145,000 new jobs were added. But this is at a time of incredibly low unemployment. Uh, the president, uh, you know, it's not clear who's going to win next year. It's not clear who the president's going to face, uh, or excuse me, this year now, we're in 2020. It's not clear who the president's going to face in November. But tell us a little bit about what the economy uh, suggests uh, for uh, the presidential campaign that it's about to unfold in front of us. Well, uh, the news today caps a year of 2.1 million jobs created. That's the smallest annual increase since 2011 when we were crawling out of a recession. And the, uh, the wage growth has in this last quarter certainly has been anemic. On the other hand, uh, the Financial Times poll yesterday reported that for the first time, American, a majority of Americans think that Trump's economic policies have helped the economy. Uh, why is that important? Well, just a month ago, 44%. So if this is a trend, it's a trend that's ominous for Democrats. It's, a, it's ominous in another way, too. The, econ- the economic models that predict the president's victory, one by, some by Mark Zandi uh, at Moody's Analytics, some by Ray Fair at Yale, some by Oxford e- Economics, they all predict a pres- President Trump will win based on the economy as it exists and as they project it. But they have a, a sort of codicil, which is only if people give him credit for the economy. He is now threat. He's now crossed that threshold. People, a majority, give him and his policies credit for the good times. The good news, possible good news, the opening for the Democrats is that only 37 percent of Americans in this Financial Times uh, poll say the economy is better for them. Now, that's that's sort of an answer to the Ronald Reagan question. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? That's a that's a that's an opening for the Democrats. I want to uh, turn to uh, one of the Democrats who has made it clear he is not the top uh, polling Democrat, but he's going to stick around. Comedian and writer Larry David plays the presidential candidate and senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, on Saturday Night Live. On CBS's Late Show, Stephen Colbert asked Larry David what he should ask Sanders in a later interview. David says, actually, he's just sick and tired of flying in from the coast to do the show while Sanders Sanders stays in the race. I would say I would beg him to drop out so I don't have to keep flying in from Los Angeles to do SNL. Right, because he's doing very well yeah. this year. He's I tied in I'd, Iowa. Uh, he's like yeah. raised $36 million. I thought he when could... he had the heart attack, that was going to be it. I wouldn't have to fly in from Los Angeles. But, you know, he's, he's indestructible. Nothing stops this man. We, uh, you uh, follow the 2020 race closely. Uh, the, the, the man in the Oval Office the, has a, a strong stake in what happens to the Democrats. Uh, to what do you attribute the, the, the lasting power of Bernie Sanders and how significant a threat do you think he will be to, to Joe Biden to be able to, to try to figure out a way to run away with this? Oh, I think he poses a real threat to Biden because he can make the case that he can get those voters uh, that Biden cannot. And, um, you know, the president has even said that Bernie was shafted in 2016, um, that he should have been the nominee. And, you know, I think some voters still feel that way. Um, And so, you know, that's why he continues to have um, this power, especially from his base, that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. That's also why we see President Trump continue to attack him. In fact, last night at that rally in Toledo, campaign officials told us that um, we should expect the president to really go after Sanders. And he did. 
Um, he's, you know, also tweeting. His campaign is tweeting about Sanders, um, calling the killing of uh, Soleimani an assassination, um, saying that, you know, Bernie could not protect you, that it's the president that goes after bad guys and not someone like Sanders. And so um, he has real staying power. And and I think that, you know, perhaps that's, uh, again, a residual pain from from voters uh, that they felt years ago. And, and, you know, I think that the fact is that people expected him to try again. And so now you're seeing this um, support. But, you know, the big question is whether the establishment will support him as well. And so that's, of course, where where Biden has points. And, and, you know, these two will go at it. But um, I can tell you from the White House, even though the president says he wants to face Sanders, there is a real concern there because they, you know, can appeal to the same voters. Uh, sort of very demonstrative, very demonstrative men in their late seventies who you don't know necessarily exactly what they're going to say next. Weijia Jiang, uh, White House correspondent at CBS News, we appreciate so much your time and your insights today. And thanks to you to Farnaz Fasihi. She's a journalist with the New York Times who uh, focuses so much on Iran and the Middle East. Thank you, Farnaz. We've also been joined by Jack Beatty's On Point's own news analyst. Jack, always a pleasure. Thank you, David. You can continue the conversation and get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. You can follow us on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. On Point is produced by Anna Bauman, Justine Daum, Eileen Amata, Stefano Katsonis, Wes Martin, James Ross, Dory Scheimer, Alex Schroeder, Grace Tatter, and Adam Waller. With help from Carolyn Love, Bradley Noble, and Sidney Wertheim, our executive producers, Karen Schiffman. Me, I'm David Folkenflick. You've been listening to On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.